0: Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal to help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey everybody, and welcome to episode two twenty-two of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Man, I've been excited about this episode for a long time. Uh, largely because the leader I'm talking to today is somebody who has influenced me for 15 years of my leadership, which is almost the entire stretch. Not quite, but like early on, I discovered Patrick Lencioni. And by the way, it is Lencioni, not Lencioni. So uh, I learned that in the process of interviewing Patrick as well. Uh, This was a great conversation. Oh, my goodness. He was so generous with his time. And we talked about lots of stuff I didn't know. Having read virtually all of his books and heard him speak many times, we talked about how he met Steve Jobs and how he escaped the reality distortion field, if you know anything about Steve Jobs, and said no to him. Uh, We talk about how he leads the table group and what's really hard for him in leadership at home. And we talked about working with millennials and a whole lot of other things. You're going to love, I think, this episode. And if you've got a business leader, In your church or organization, a friend that you think would benefit from this episode, go ahead and share it with them. You guys are the ones who uh, have helped this podcast grow. We're at over six and a half million downloads, and that's because you guys share like crazy. So thank you for that. And a lot of you have really been enjoying the conversations we're having this month on how you can save in healthcare. So healthcare, particularly in the United States, a lot of people struggle with both on the personal level, but also on the organizational level. And that's why Remodel Health exists. They're actually a technology company that wants to make things better for you. So you may have an old school approach. It's like, well, you know, this is our traditional group health plan. It's for corporations, not for churches or not for profits. Uh, And that's one of the reasons they cost so so there is now another more affordable solution, and Remodel Health has it. They are a trusted partner of Brotherhood Mutual and MetaShare, and they have a benefits platform designed for faith-based organizations. So what they do is they navigate the often complicated and expensive worlds of healthcare, and they find a solution that's way more affordable for you as an employer and for your staff. On average, they're saving employers 34% annually in healthcare insurance costs, Plus, they have innovative ideas on how to help your employees save personally. So imagine what happens with all those savings when they get reintroduced and reinvested in your mission. Remodel Health co-founder and president Justin Clements and I have been talking about prescription healthcare costs. In the last episode, I asked him about it and we drill down a little bit deeper because it's so expensive, particularly if you have kids. So are there choices available is what I asked Justin when it comes to prescriptions. Here's his answer.
1: There are a lot of choices, and uh, usually people, most people have an insurance card that has a prescription copay on, on the card, and a lot of times it's broken out into tiers, and so if you have a, you know, a non-generic drug, you might have a $50 copay, for example. If you go to GoodRx, you can, nine times out of ten, you could get the drug cheaper on your own if you pay cash rather than paying the copay. Don't always assume that your copay is the cheapest route.
0: So if you want to save as an individual and you want your employees to save when it comes to health care, make sure you check out Remodel Health. In fact, you should go to remodelhealthcom carry to find out more. They will give you a free quote and a buying guide today, and that can help you save on average 34% on your payroll costs when it comes to health care. Now I'm really excited about January because Patrick Lencioni and I are going to be speaking at PushPay's summit in Dallas, Texas. So you can visit pushpay.com slash carry, and you can save 10% on registration for that. And PushPay is an innovative leader when it comes to helping your church get online. Let's face it. I mean, I read stats recently, something like 99% of people have phones And 95% of people now have smartphones. And the problem is churches aren't using them maximally to help your people engage, particularly when it comes to giving. So Pushpay provides mobile apps and enables digital giving that helps you and your audience all week long, not just on Sundays. They're experts at technology, and they have the largest customer base in the entire industry, more than 7,000 churches are using them. And last year, they facilitated $3 billion in contributions toward churches. And here's the reality. Churches that use digital giving see an increase in giving. So I got to tell you, I would love for you to check it out. So visit pushpay.com to learn more. See what everyone's talking about. Tell them Carrie sent you. And remember, if you go to pushpay.com slash Carrie, you can save 10% on their one-day summit January 2019 Patrick Lencioni will be speaking, I'll be speaking. It's going to be pretty cool, so save 10% there by going to pushpay.com/carry for that. And speaking of Patrick Lencioni, he has written 11 books that have sold over 5 million copies. They've been translated into more than 30 languages, and the Wall Street Journal calls him one of the most in-demand speakers in America. Uh, He has been featured on the Harvard Business Review, Inc., Fortune, Fast Company, USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, and Business Week. And you know what? He's also a super nice guy. I love this conversation with Patrick Lencioni. So here is my chat with Pat. Well, I'm so excited to have Pat Lencioni on the podcast today. Pat, we've already done half a podcast before we started rolling tape, didn't we?
1: That's right, Carrie. It's fun to talk to you. So let's just keep it going.
0: Yeah, 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 that's right. Talked about all kinds of great things. And uh, man, I've been reading your book since, uh, well, I think since you started writing them, I actually looked at your chronology and and it's not that far off. Uh, listen to you speak and you've you've shaped me and so many of the leaders who are listening for the better. So just want to start by saying thank you. And I'd love to Love to get into how you started writing business books. Like, did you just wake up one day and decide I'm going to be a consultant to top leaders, or like, how did that work? It's it's a fascinating story, and and you're extremely well known and have helped just millions of leaders lead better.
1: You know the the the, the truth is it was. Accidental, if you will, or that you know God is good has been really good to me, and i didn 't mm. know how this would all play out. I did not sit down to be a business author. I was doing some work pro bono for for a company. I was dabbling as an organizational consultant and um, years ago, and I was working with this startup and I just came up with a theory um, in in observing CEOs in different organizations and i and I came up with these five things that impacted leadership and which which became the five temptations of a CEO, but I didn't call Mm -hmm. it that. I just said, hey, here's these things. And I started to tell people about it. And I found that they were repeating it back to me over months and a year. And somebody said, you should write a book about this because this really works. And I was like, well, I'm kind of busy. And they said, somebody else is going to write this book. (laughs) And so I said, okay, I'll do that. I'd never thought about that. And then I decided I would write a fable because I was a screenwriter for fun in a previous life, just as a hobby. So I wrote it. And I didn't know anything about publishing. We were gonna take it to Kinko's when I started my business and, and, and just hand it out to our clients. And a publisher saw it, but again, by the grace of God, and said, we wanna publish it. And then they published it and it sold. And they said, write another one. And, and we had another one, thankfully, and then write another one. Well, then the first book had kind of morphed into a team book and that one took off. And so it's by accident, nothing's by accident. I did hmm. love writing since I was a little kid. I admit it, I, since I saw John Boy on the Waltons, a TV show when I was a little kid, oh, yeah. I, I, I said, I like what he does, he's a writer. And so since I was a little kid, I was always writing, but I studied economics in school, so it wasn't like I was gonna do that. But then when this all came together, I said, well, let's, I, was, I loved business culture and I loved writing, and so I did it, and that's how it came about. So it's, it was not by design, it was through passion and God letting me use that passion in a way that hopefully serves him.
0: What were you doing at the time? What was your day job or kept you well, busy? Well,
1: when I first got out of school, I worked at a management consulting firm called Bain & Company. And, and I would literally work till probably 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock every night. I mean, you know, it was crazy. But then I would stay for another two hours <laughs> and write screenplays. So that, I, I, it was, that tells you I loved it because I was tired. But I was like, oh, I really want to write these screenplays. And so um, when so I so that wrote was this- what
0: your side hustle? That was like before there was yeah. a side hustle, or just a, a hobby, or screenwriting? Just a
1: hobby. But I, I did get some attention from Hollywood. I went to a conference and I got one of my screenplays looked at by uh, Ron Howard, who's a director. My goodness. And, yeah. And um, but but then they said, well, we want you to make it more like this other movie. And I was like, okay, am I going to join this industry and move to Hollywood? And I said, no. I want to have a family. I want to have integrity, and I don't want to really live down there and, and hustle. So I just said oh, I have to give that up, and so then it, I I didn't know that I'd ever be able to write professionally until this all came back out. And and what I was doing at that point, I was writing, working for a big company called Sybase, a database company, and I then started my own company, and that was in 1997.
0: Really? So your background, your training was in business management, or or what was it in?
1: You know, I it was in. It was at Bain. I worked there for a couple of years and it was management consulting, but I was really just a grunt, you know? I mean, yeah. and then I went to Oracle for two and a half years. So five years out of college, I had worked for two companies, Bain and Oracle, and they were both really rough. But I was, it was like, you know, trial by fire. You get thrown into these relatively competitive, slightly, pretty dysfunctional environments. And I was just like, this is not how business should run. and and human beings need to be more important than this. And so that's where I really developed, and thank God for this, an understanding of how management and leadership in fact impacts people and their lives and how that in in turn impacts the organization's success and health. And so that's how I kind of got into this field through five years of, of really difficult stuff. Then I went to this pretty enlightened company called Sybase where I worked for five years. And then I started to get job offers from some pretty famous CEOs, and I was like, what am I doing? I need to start my own company. And that's when me and a few colleagues started a company, and it went from there.
0: Wait, that's not intuitive. You're getting job offers from well-known CEOs, and you're like, wait, I shouldn't be doing this. I should be starting a company. Like, What's the sequence well, there?
1: Well, I was really passionate about organizational health, organizational culture, not in a touchy-feely sense. You know, I, was, yeah. I, I had come from some non-touchy-feely environments, and it was too bad that they didn't understand this. So I really loved that. And then Steve Jobs offered me the job of running HR at Pixar when he was there. Yeah. And I, Nope. And I interviewed with him, and which was an interesting experience. And I turned it down because I didn't really love HR, and I, I felt like working with Steve Jobs would have been a little too close to the sun, if you know what I mean. And <laughs> yeah. um. And then the headhunter called me and said, listen, people don't turn Steve Jobs down for a job. And he said, you, he's going to come pick you up and take you to lunch tomorrow. And so, and then that very day, Steve Jobs got hired at, to go back to Apple because the CEO <sighs> of Apple quit. And so I fell off of his radar, which I think was a blessing, very much so.
0: Yeah, I mean, he, if he, he gets what he wants, right? I mean, there would have been multiple yes. lunches.
1: Yes, exactly. And then... Um, and then I got a job offer from another CEO who's now the chairman of, of Google. And, and he was at another company and he offered me a job. And as I was considering it, my wife and I were considering it and praying about it. And I just thought, I have these wonderful employees that I work with in my old company. We all had the same passion and we all decided, let's go out on our own and start a company. Um, and my dad, God rest his soul, said, oh, Pat, but you had benefits at those other places and, you know, security. And I said, I know, but dad, but I think this is what I'm, I'm meant to do. And, and he he was very glad finally that I did it
0: too. Yeah, that's sort of the dad mindset yeah, you've got. Yeah. Sons, I've got sons. It's like yep. no, don't 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 trust it all to professional uh, musicianship, you know? Like uh. like go get that degree. Can you when you think back on that first those first 5 years in the two difficult companies, Bain and Oracle, which you've named, what were some of the things that you even as a leader in your 20s, you looked at that and said this isn't right? Like what were what were two or three of the top dysfunctions
1: that you noticed? Well, one is that it, it's kind of that Theory X, Theory Y school of leadership, which sounds, th- which is just basically, do you think people are good and want to do the right things, or do you think they're bad and they need to be, you know, cajoled by carrots and sticks and things like mm-hmm. that? And 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 I think most of those companies assumed people were bad and needed to be like managed through somewhat some intimidation and some threats and things like that. And and I was just like. I don't know why they think that works. It certainly doesn't work for me. And right. so, so I think early on, I was like, these, guys, these people really are making a bad decision. They're, they're frustrating good people who want to do even better than they're doing now with these carrots and sticks. And if they were only honored in that way, they would get so much more out of them and they'd have a better company. So there was that. I think the whole concept of transparency and vulnerability too, it was like people were taught in those organizations I was taught in my first ones, don't admit your faults, don't acknowledge your your weaknesses. And um, that just seemed count, it was not very liberating and it didn't allow for a lot of joy, but that was kind of the prevailing wisdom. Um, Then the other thing is I think that they kind of saw success as being a zero sum game. It's like, I have to win and someone has to lose. And listen, I I think competition is a good thing. I think capitalism is generally a really good idea. And I think people are motivated by that kind of stuff, but not at the expense of others. And, you know, um, recently I've come across that quote by uh, Theodore Roosevelt, which I think is great, which is, comparison is the thief of joy. What a great quote that is. Comparison is the thief of joy. And so many of these companies were motivated by comparison against their competitors, against one another. And it was like, can't people just do really well and be motivated to improve and to satisfy their customers. Does it really have to be at somebody else's expense? So those are kind of the basic things off the top of my head that I that I would say really kind of floored me. I
0: think a lot of leaders would agree with you now, but you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. This was the nineties. You're I in know. your twenties, and that was not received wisdom. That was not um, generally accepted. Val, a value system. You know, your, your way of seeing corporate was not the way corporate saw corporate in those days. Is that correct?
1: Yes. And you know what I came to realize too? I lived in the Bay Area up here in San mm-hmm. Francisco. And um, I I found that anybody that was doing anything on the softer side of business, I don't even like to use that term, but sure. it was it was a big new age group group. There was a bunch of there was a bunch of wealthy hippies, it seemed, or, or wannabe hippies that lived in Marin County. And I don't wanna cast aspersions on them, but that they were like doing, if, 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 a, if a leader was gonna do anything that was not numbers, numerical competition, they were turning to these people that were just touchy-feely for the sake of touchy-feely. And I found that to be equally abhorrent or equally distasteful. So there was you had to be either soft or hard. You had to be new-agey, touchy-feely, which I thought was silly, or you had to be grinded out compete and be and i thought no no it's it's actually a combination of those two things it's a venn diagram if you will and so when i launched my business finally we went to ceos and said listen the soft side of business kills you turnover morale politics all that kind of stuff but it's not touchy feely and we're not going to hug each other and fall out of a tree and blindfold each other and Lay around on the floor, get <laughs> naked, smoke pot, and sing songs. We're like, this is just as practical. It's just a little harder to measure, but it, but it it matters. It's human and it's 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 good, but it's not soft. And and CEOs were like, okay, we want to we want to hear about this. And so I feel like my whole career has been taking the best of the soft and the best of the hard, putting it together in a way that produces results and honors people simultaneously.
0: Did you get pushback? when you were first floating those theories? And if so, what did it look
1: like? You know, we got a lot less pushback than we thought. Really? It was interesting. And I think it was because we knew why people had, had objected to this stuff. We anticipated our objections as uh, an author guy, Terry Pierce, I knew, used to say to do. Every once in a while, there was a CEO said, like, oh, this is a bunch of crap. But there was actually, once you explained to them, once you said to them, we know you hate that, that touchy-feely stuff. We know that you think HR does a lot of stupid things, and they do, but if you could only understand the practical implications of this, so many leaders were open to hearing that. And I have to tell you that so many leaders want practical solutions to human problems. Mm. What they don't want is theoretical solutions to human problems or practical solutions to just numerical problems. And so there was something there, thank God, and that's, I think, why our business and our books and our everything else that we do here has taken off because I think people were hungry for real practical things that, that addressed the messiness of human beings.
0: Well, and that's a really wise strategy, too, to anticipate the objections encounter them and almost lead with it like, we know you don't want the hippie solution. We know you've got totally. to make money.
1: Absolutely. Even to this day, that's one of the most powerful things we say to people is like we will not waste your time you know one of the things we learned carry is that there's three objections that people had to the stuff we do but the first one wasn't how much will it cost that was third that was a distant third but so many vendors so many consultants lead with that and they're like well this is what it'll cost and it's like well no, no no the first thing they want to know is this: how much time is it going to take because i'm busy right so we would say we we would say we're not going to waste your time we're going to go fast We're going to spend a day and a half with your team. And at the end of it, you will have gotten more work done than if you were back in the office. Secondly, their second issue was, am I going to look like a fool? Because everybody said, we're going to go do an offsite. And then people are acting like an animal or doing building a human pyramid. And people are like, this is the dumbest thing ever. And we said, your people will say that was the most practical, best decision you've ever made. And then they'd go, okay, so you're saying it'll go by fast. Nobody will be bored. And it will be practical. And people will be really glad I, I, I had them do this. And then they'd say, what's it going to cost? And then we'd say, well, it's, it'll be expensive, but you'll never care because it'll get so much. The value will be so high. And let me tell you, when people thank us for doing the work, we're like, well, we charged you. And they're like, no, 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 no. Thank you, though. It doesn't matter. You, you helped us. So they thank us for charging them to do something that served them. It's not about the money. It's That's just not awesome. about the money. And we're not doing it to get rich, but because it's, we're busy and because there's a lot of demand, we charge, we have to charge more than we ever thought we would. And people are glad to pay it because it works.
0: Okay, I'm curious because uh, I'll, I'll make a true confession. The way you write your books, I'm the bullet point guy. So I read the second half of your books.
1: <laughs> hey, <laughs> but, and that's why we do it.
0: All right. Tell me about that, because I think virtually all of them, if not all of them, are leadership fable followed by the points. I would love for you to unpack that because I think there's some genius behind it because I'm sure there's a lot of people who read the front of the book.
1: Yes, so it's interesting. So I wrote the, the, the fiction and I did it because I didn't want people not to finish the book. When I first got asked to write a book, I thought, man, if I write a book and I spend months doing this and I write all this stuff and the second half of the book, I want to work really hard on. And if people are anything like me, they're not going to read the second half. They're <laughs> going to skim it and they're going to put it down. I thought, what a bummer. So I said, I'm going to write fiction, and I'm going to write it in a way that's going to make them want to finish it. But then I'll put the stuff in the back that if somebody really just wanted to download, like get the the download from it, they could read the 15 pages in the back that summarize the model. And frankly, most books should probably be about 15 to 20 pages. You
0: think so? 15 to 20 pages?
1: Well, I, and I don't know if it's 30, I don't know if it's 10, but but I think sometimes people go, okay, I'm write a book, and the publisher's like, well, it needs to be this thick if we're going to charge $19.95 for it. And I think there was a model. And today, I think just people are not that, that patient, and I think people can kind of see when pe- when authors make it too long. And yes. so so I wrote the fiction, and then I said, okay, let's summarize it in the back so people can grab it. Now, here's the deal. For every reader, carry like you, mm-hmm. there's – 19, I can't, couldn't, I can't believe this, who uh, who liked the fiction because they want to be drawn in. And wow. I can't tell you how many women have come up to me and said, my husband, half my readers are women probably, but but I can't tell, believe how many women have come up to me and said, my husband doesn't read. A lot of men just don't read, but he yep. reads your books. Fascinating. And, and because it's short, because they, they can get into the characters, and because... Before they know what's going on, they've finished it. And they go, okay, now let's look into this. So, so even though when I came out with The Advantage, which was my first nonfiction book, and I thought, well, maybe that's a better idea. Most people said, we really like that book, but go back and write fiction.
0: Oh, see, and I, The Advantage is probably my favorite of your book. And it's yeah. a bit of a summary, too, of your life's work to date, right, 2012? It is.
1: And, yeah. and you would think that I would prefer writing the fiction, and I do love fiction, but it's hard The the story and the character is just like, oh, whereas it was kind of nice to write the Advantage and just be able to come straight out and say, here's the model, here's what you do. We still tried to make it interesting, right? but but it was kind of a relief not to have to make the plot make sense and the characters make sense and build in the drama and all that stuff.
0: That's a skill set. Like, I'm I'm in awe of it, actually. Uh, I mean, I'm a nonfiction writer and I'm a bullet point guy, you know, logical, didactic thinking and... Yep. Um, I, I think you're a master at both, which is oh, which is great. Um, so here we are, 25, no, 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 uh, yeah, 20 some odd years after you started your company, <laughs> The Table Group. What would you say, talking to all kinds of leaders, are the two or three issues that just keep surfacing at the top of the list that you would say defines sort of the workplace culture in you know, the late 2010s, 2018, heading into 19, what would be the two or three that just crossed your desk almost every day?
1: I think that it's going to, it's funny. I'm, I'm going to, I'll do the two that I'll go from extremes. On the so, one hand, on the most behavioral level, on the idealistic or, or behavioral level, there's just humility and, and understanding that when you get a leader who truly doesn't think they're important, and is in service of others. And I know we, we throw servant leadership around and all this in humility and words like that. But I mean, when they really believe that they are no more important than the lowest level person in their organization, when they really get that, that is the thing, and and, and pride mm. is the root of all sin. It just is. Yes, it is, and so humility is the antidote. And so when when people are when a lead, when you meet a leader who's humble, say, so "I don't really want to be famous. I don't really want people to treat me better. I really want to serve them and see good things come out." And and let me tell you, faith is so often. I I will tell you on this podcast, I don't understand how to have that humility, without mm. without Jesus, because because he died for us and it didn't make sense and so why would we die to others it doesn't make sense and it's that's what makes leadership so great
0: mm. and i know for those of you who are listening i mean pat you're a, you're a committed christ follower yes. uh you've been quite public with that you're very active in the roman catholic church and um we'll talk about that i think toward the end and and i agree humility Humility for me springs from faith. Uh, it's Because it's, otherwise I'm just full of myself. Like, <laughs> I don't know about you, but, but I'm pretty good at that naturally.
1: And there might be people listening that aren't actively in faith or they don't have a faith that, per se. And they say, but I get humility. And I think that's, I think that's where you know, St. Augustine said, our, our hearts will not rest until they rest in God. In, in nature, we have a desire for this. We know that humility is special. But if we're not humble to someone... Then it's hard to like. So why? And so so when people have don't have faith and they strive for humility, at some point they're saying, "What am I humbling mm-hmm. myself to?" And so that's now that's that, again that's pretty theoretical. I don't mean it, or idealistic and uh, behavioral. That's so that's the one thing I still see is when I see a leader who's doing it for themselves, even if they're struggling with that, it's really tough. And even mm-hmm. and it's especially evident in church leaders, who who are get caught up in the trappings of pride. And um, so, anyway, that's the thing I still see. The biggest problem for most leaders is do they really embrace and understand humility. On the other end of the scale, at a very practical level, the biggest problem I see for leaders is not knowing how to run a meeting. <laughs> Meetings are still, the killer. All
0: these years after death
1: of absolutely, death of me. yeah. And 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 be, and what they do is they've just come to the conclusion that. Meetings are like corporate penance. It's just something bad that we have to do. There's no getting around it. And that's just not the right attitude. Meetings are actually critical, wonderful, and necessary. And we need to embrace them. And just today, I was just in a meeting before you called. In fact, we put off this, this podcast for five minutes because we we're in a, a meeting. We're, we're having this big. This big um, call tomorrow with with over a thousand people, and what things we're going to say is like meetings are to leadership and to organizations, as as dating is to a marriage. Okay, it's you go on dates to work on your marriage, and it is the fruit of a good marriage as well, and then you enjoy Mm. it. And and a great meeting is necessary to build a healthy, effective organization. And it's, it's the joy of building one that meetings are where you get to experience that. Now, most people would say, no, 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 no. Meetings are drudgery. But it would be like saying exercise is drudgery to a healthy person. It's not. It's something you have to do to get healthy. And it's what you enjoy as a result of being healthy. Hmm. And so... We have come to realize that when companies really learn how to have great meetings, and, when, and that's up to the leader, meetings become the most enjoyable, joy-filled activity of working. It's being with like-minded people that are trying to do good together, and it's where your, your genius comes out and your joy comes out.
0: Well, I think the proof is in the pudding when Amy from your team was setting up the call and testing levels and that. She said, hey, thanks for giving us the extra five minutes. I said, do you need more? And she said, no, 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 no. But you know what? We would just keep meeting forever in this company unless there was a hard (laughs) stop. (laughs) How many times do you hear that from people, right?
1: Well, get this. We were just in that meeting. I will tell you, it started with four of us. And then somebody else came in. They go, oh, I want to be in with this. And then somebody else stood in the doorway listening and said, come on, you want to be in here? They go, okay. And so there were six of us because we really enjoyed what we were talking about. It was focused. It was passionate. It mattered. Meetings are the most fun we have at work. And for those people who think we must be part of a cult, it's not. It's just because once you get them right, it becomes utter joy.
0: Well, I can't leave it there. And the book whose title I was struggling to remember, Death by Meeting, is that correct? 2005? Okay. Yep. I remember I bought that when it first came out. And uh, can you run us through, just for those who are like, seriously, Pat, can you run us through a couple of keys that have um, turned meetings into joy for you and could do it for leaders who are listening? Just what are a few of the keys?
1: The first thing is we have to stop making meetings stew. Meeting stew Mm -hmm. is when we have... um, We try to have every kind of meeting in one session, and then we wonder why it tastes so bad. Meeting stew is when we have a meeting where we talk about tactical, strategic, long-term, short-term, administrative, and developmental topics, all in one thing, which we usually call a staff meeting, and we leave frustrated. Meeting too, happens in our homes when my wife and I, in the morning, while we're brushing our teeth in the bathroom, try to decide where we're going on vacation, who's picking up the kids, what we're having for dinner, should we have another child, and should we ha- get a counselor for our son who's struggling with something? And we wonder why that's such a frustrating morning. It's because we were not meant to have all of those conversations in the same setting. Yes. And we do it at work, and we wonder, why are these meetings frustrating? Because we're meant to have different contexts for different conversations. And once we separate those out, everything gets easier. When we have a five-minute conversation around what we're working on that day, five minutes, that's fine. When my wife and I have five minutes about what we're going to get done that day, that's great. When we have a separate meeting for like, okay, once a week we're going to get together, we're not going to question our strategy. We're not going to do long-term planning. We're just going to go over what little obstacles are preventing us from moving forward. When we have a separate meeting for two hours over pizza and with beer, and we try to solve a big, hairy problem, that's fun. But not if somebody interrupts every five minutes and says, hey, let's talk about the budget, or let's talk about <laughs> some... It's like, no, you're killing our buzz here, folks. And then <laughs> once Keep every... Once every three months, we should get together and do a little vacation and step back and say, "How are we doing?" If you do, if you break all those things out, every one of those experiences becomes very much more enjoyable, and we don't find ourselves switching gears so much that we just implode. So that's the, the, this the, the killing of median stew takes a bunch of great ingredients and puts them in their proper dish, so we can enjoy them all, and then the biggest thing is making sure that weekly meeting is really effective. So those are, that's what I would say is the the big thing.
0: Hmm. Your uh, most recent book, The Ideal Team Player, uh, I hear it quoted all the time. It's amazing. When, when did that come out? Was that last year, the year before?
1: It was the year, it was, I believe it was 2016. Yeah. And I haven't written anything since then because I've been so busy, but I'm working on four books right now. But one business book. Two of them are business oriented, but one of them, a couple are faith-based, but one of them is about leadership. So I've got a bunch of things on the in the pipeline right now. Oftentimes I have nothing in the pipeline and I think I'm finished, but right now for whatever reason the pipeline is. But I have to say something about the ideal team player. I didn't, I wasn't going to write that book. I, that was the I just thought, I don't think this is a book. Is there enough here? It's so simple. And the re- response from readers and managers and leaders has been better than any book I've ever written. They're using it quicker, and they're they're finding that it makes a difference faster than any book I've ever written. Isn't so,
0: that interesting? And, and that's what I was going to say, Pat. Like I've heard people quote you, and then it's sort of even non-attributed back to the three key phrases, humble, hungry, smart. Um, yep. It's been rapidly adopted in corporate and even in the church world as these are the three qualities we're looking for in people. Which is which is you know remarkably fast in 24 months to have it that widely cited. Um, can you walk us through what you mean by humble, hungry, and smart?
1: Yes, and, and I, I do want to tell you that this came about by accident long before, even before I started this company. When I worked in a different department at this company called Sybase, we read Good to Great or Built to Last and said, we're supposed to go out and get, You know, Jerry Purse and Jim Collins wrote that book and they said core values are critical to a company. So we went out and had an offsite and said, what are our core values in our little department that I ran? And we came up with these three values, humble, hungry, and smart. And we didn't think anything of it. Then, you know, the next year we started our own company and we adopted those values we and we're gonna keep those values because the people that worked with me were from that department. And then we would go out and work with executive teams. And one of the things we helped them with is clarifying their values. And they would ask us what our values were. And we would tell them it's humble, hungry, and smart. And they would say, okay, we want to use those values for our company. And we'd say, no, 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 you have to come up with your own values. And they'd say, no, but we like yours. And we thought they were just being lazy. And the truth is we didn't even realize for for literally 17 years in the first seven, or actually it was probably the first 15 years of our company, that the reason why they were interested in those values is because they had universal application to teams. Because when we finally sat down and said, well, what does it take to be a team player? Like, what are the underlying virtues? We said, oh my gosh, if a person were humble, hungry, smart, that's why we picked those values is because we wanted to have a team-oriented company. It should have dawned on us because that's what we did, but it wasn't for you know 14 or 15 years that we came up with that. And so then we wrote the book and, and people just said, that's it. So it wasn't like I sat down and said, gee, I want to come up with three things. What should they be? We'd been swimming in those values for for quite a long time. And I think that's why it, it resonated with people because we had been kind of using those and testing those for a long time. So let's go over the three values. Humble. Sure. Humble seems obvious. And by the way, all these seem obvious and they're not Rocket science, they're pretty simple. But but humble is important to understand. On the one hand, it is simple. It's it's like not arrogant, not self-centered, upper centered, not thinking too much of yourself. But it's not being it's not lacking confidence. Hmm. C.S. Lewis, you know, said, and, and I think Ken Blanchard is the guy who always reminds me, C. S. Lewis once said, humility is not thinking less of yourself than you should. It's just thinking about yourself less. And, and that's the thing. It's not like I was explaining this to my son. The other day, my 12-year-old who plays football, I said, Michael, you shouldn't doubt that you have skill. You just shouldn't try to call attention to it. But when other people do, or when you can apply yourself, you need to acknowledge that you're good at things. Just don't feel the need to remind people of that. And that's really important because sometimes we think, Humble people are the ones that lack confidence, that never assert themselves. And that's not true. That's a violation of humility and a violation of teamwork.
0: How so? so? Humility,
1: because if if you're on a team and and you downplay your own skills, your own contributions, because you're afraid to appear that you're lacking humility, that is its own form of pride. And it's going to deprive the people on your team of the contributions you could make. Hmm. So when when I'm on a team and people say, well, Pat, you should come up with, you should tell us what you think. It's like, no, no, no. You know, I'm not that smart and you guys are smarter than I am. And and sometimes that's true. And it it is humble to admit that, but sometimes you really are good at something and you should say, you know something, you guys, I do think that I'm good at this. I think I have a knack for this. It's a God-given talent. That's why we call it a gift but I think I might be the best in the in, in our team on this. So why don't I take a stab at this? And why don't I tell you, why don't I advocate for something that I think would be good? A team player will do that and will even, even push for their ideas if they really believe they have a better idea, even if they think someone might misperceive them as not being humble. Hmm. See, because a humble person will be comfortable enough to know, no, my intentions are pure. I really think I... I I have the best idea here. Whereas a person whose pride is tied up in being humble, isn't that ironic? It's a (laughs) catch-22, won't do that. So
0: that's interesting. I'm, I'm glad you're speaking into that because we do, we have a lot of business leaders. We have a lot of church leaders listening. That would strike a number of church leaders as really like, really, Pat? Can, so why is that not, I agree with you by the way, I, I've, I've thought a lot over the years about C.S. Lewis's definition of humility and I think it's the best one, the best articulation that I know of. Um, so why is saying, you know what, I'm a good communicator, I'm gonna take a crack at this series.
1: Why is that not pride or arrogance? Well, again, it depends on what your intentions are. But okay. if you really believe deep down inside that one of your God-given talents is communication. And you really believe deep down inside that when you look around your team, that he gave you more of that ability than others. Probably they think they know that too. Hmm. And when we go, no, 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 well, I'm no better at this than you guys. And I've done that by the way, because my pride was like the last thing I wanted anyone to accuse me of is being proud. Yeah. And I took pride in the fact that nobody would accuse me of being proud. I mean, (laughs) and so I, oh, no, you guys are just as good. And they go, no, Pat, and it's okay to go, yeah, you guys, I probably am the right person to design this presentation, but I'm not the right person to figure out how to implement this. And I'm not the right person to decide how other people might receive. So let me do what I'm good at and let me honor what you guys are good at. And as a result, we will do the best job possible.
0: So it's still team focused. In other words, I'm going to do this so we can all move forward rather than, I'm going to do this so I
1: can shine. Absolutely. In fact, and when it's done, like let's just say communication were your skill, you are going to get more attention from that. So, so let's just say you're really good at communicating. You're not really good at writing or designing something. You should be celebrating, acknowledging, and, and pointing, att- giving attention to the people that did all the other things. Humbly accepting when people go, you did a great job in that sermon or that homily. You should say, well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Bob did a great job of putting it together. And Susan really helped us figure out how to tailor it to different audiences. And, and Joe put together all the slides or all the, the things that go with that. And I just want to honor them. But I want to thank you for calling out. And I'm really glad I get to use the skills I have, which I think I, I, do, I do love communicating. I'm not going to deny that I'm good at that. But I'm not going to try to get more attention to myself. I'm going to also share that, the, 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 the goodness with others. That's, that's humility.
0: That's mm. humility. Well, let's talk about hungry. What does that mean?
1: Hungry. Hungry. But now, but having said what we just said about humility, the, the biggest thing is if a person is self-indulgent, needy, wants attention, wants credit, the, the, the simple definition of lacking humility does take up about 80% of that. So you don't have to overthink that. Right. I just think it's important to understand that. Hungry is is the one that's probably the simplest to understand, and maybe the hardest to teach. And that is, a person has to just have that desire to do more. They're, they don't want to be a minimalist. They they don't want to just get by. They're just like, no, I really want to take this beyond with the the what's acceptable. I want I want to go beyond. I want to work a little harder than than I'm asked. I want to I want to go above and beyond. Now it's, the, the key here is it's not workaholism. Workaholism is when you get your whole identity in your work. It's the sense that I can take it beyond, I can do more. And I wanna see it be the best it can possibly be. And, and these are people that just don't leave early or don't do just the minimum and, and, and check out. They wanna see how they can help. They wanna see how they can make it better. They wanna push a little harder than you ask them to.
0: So um, is that like drive, initiative, self-starting? Um, yes. Yeah.
1: Okay. Not afraid to work harder than you've asked. I like to hire har- hungry people because I would much rather encourage someone to back it off than I would to step it up. I'd much rather say, hey, it's, you can go home. Let's, 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 let's let this be. Than to say, come on, you can do better than that.
0: Yeah, I have that conversation with my team all the time. It's like, enjoy your holiday, like turn off the lights, okay? Time to go home. And so much easier as a boss than to be like, can you come into work today? Exactly. Can you please show up at the meeting? Yeah, that is, is is yeah, well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a minute, the coachability. Okay, anything else on Hungry?
1: No, just that what I found is after a certain age, Although I don't think it's age driven, but there are, it's age and personality. There are some people that you want them to work harder and they're like, you don't understand. I don't really, I'm not that passionate about my work. I do this because I'm passionate about other things. And the problem with that is it's really tough for them to be a great team player at what they're doing. I mean, what, at a church, it's particularly egregious because they're like, listen, I, I do this for a job. Well, John Ortberg, a mutual friend yeah. of ours, once said, you know, nobody should work at a church because they need the work. <laughs> True. They shouldn't. And, and nobody should work at my company because they want a paycheck, for instance. If you're, or yeah. nobody should play on a football team just because they get paid. Right. And you see some athletes that go, listen, I don't do this because I want to work hard, I do this because I can get wealthy. And then you realize, well, then you're not going to understand You want to hire people that are passionate about their work and want to do good at it because they just are naturally like that. So that's what you're looking for.
0: Is that a growing... uh, Because I I talk to a lot of leaders, a lot of bosses, a lot of managers, uh, not as many as you do, but I, I talk to a few. And there seems to be a common complaint among younger workers that the drive for the mission, the company, the organization is less maybe than in previous generations. Have you seen that, or would you disagree?
1: I would agree wholeheartedly in, in, in a very interesting way, I think. I, mm-hmm. I, I, you're, you're asking great questions and it's helping me think through this. Millennials, 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 <laughs> millennials are just as capable of working hard as anybody else, but yeah. what they're not capable of or what they're not willing to do as readily is when I grew up, when I got a job, if it sucked, excuse my French. I would still just keep doing it. And that wasn't necessarily a good thing. I was raised by the the World War II um, post-depression generation. And it was like, well, it's a job. I'm just going to have to do it. And millennials are saying, listen, give me a reason to care and I will do a fantastic job for you. They're not lazy. They're not money hungry. They're just like, listen, I kind of see life a little differently than you do. If you give me a reason to care, I've got three millennials in my 10-person headquarters organization here. They bust their butt because they're connected to the mission. Yes. Now, if I said, I just want you to work hard because you're supposed to, because your grandfather did and your grandmother did and your mom and your dad, they're going to be like, yeah, I kind of saw that that really didn't pay off the same way. That's just, I think there's something enlightened about that. And it's just a reality. You know, they didn't live through the depression. They didn't live through World War II. They didn't work at a, they didn't see their parents work at a company for 50 years. They they see people changing jobs and being free agents. And they realize, you know, you're if you want me to stay and to really give my all, you're going to have to help me understand why it matters. I think that's actually a good thing in many ways, because it's making leaders do their jobs, which is to connect people to something more important than coming to work and leaving.
0: That's a really helpful clarification, and I think you just nailed that. I think for all the older leaders who are like, what's wrong? You know, it's like, well, maybe look in the mirror, because I have tons of millennials working on my team. Actually, right now, it's all millennials, and... Uh, they are highly motivated, oh my goodness, and responsible. So let me, I've always said the church has the best mission in the world. Like if you can't figure out mission as a church, something's fundamentally wrong. I mean,
1: it, it is. When people work in a church and they don't see it that way, they, you really should do them and everyone else a favor and move them out because yeah. it's too important not to love. It's like, I say this to lead church leaders all the time. And if anybody listening, I always say to them, I go up to them and I say, hey, what's more important what your organization does, or what that that world famous software company does, or that other company, and they'll say, "Well, ours, I guess." And I go, "Of course it is." I mean, yeah. a, a salvation is on the line here. That's a that they need. That's efficiency, or a, or a game, or something like that. And they will go, "Yeah, you're right. Ours is more important." And I go, "Okay, then why do you tolerate levels of performance that they wouldn't?" Wow! Right? And they like, and they're immediately convicted. They're not like they don't argue. They're like. See, yeah. what you do, the stakes are higher. And then they yeah. might say things like, well, those people pay more. And it's like, no, 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 you don't understand. Yeah. If you just made sure that everybody understood the stakes and held them to that higher standard, you would attract more people. Volunteers work harder in a church that's properly motivated than the most highly paid athlete or executive oh. in, a non, in, a, in a less idealistic one. And so what we need to do is recognize that everyone wants to work at an organization with such a high stakes, high importance mission. And if people are burned out or they're not, they're only doing the minimum, that means they don't understand it or you're not helping them connect to it. Anyway, sorry,
0: that was Oh, funny. no, that's so well said, and and thank you. That is a gift the way you phrase that. Here's the second part of the question, though. So church leaders, there's no excuse to not motivate your team. Uh, Pat, you serve the church, but the table group, mm-hmm. it's not, a local church. So I would love to know how do you motivate your team to to have that kind of hunger in what you do?
1: Ah, that's a great question. Um the the way we do it is not unlike a church. Mm-hmm. And 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 it's we connect every organization. And I got to give credit to Jim Collins on this. We we define it a little differently, but he did he was the first one who came up with this and it's he's great. I love his stuff. Every organization that's, that's, that's amazing, that's wonderful and healthy knows why it exists. And the first thing we do when we work with executive teams, the first of six clarity questions is, why do you exist beyond making money? Unless, unless it's like, it's purely to make you rich, if it is, then just let us know and that's the reason. Yep. But the vast, vast, vast majority of organizations have a reason why they exist. They just need to connect to it. And at the table group, we exist Carrie, and you won't find this on our website, although we're gonna start becoming a little bit more intentionally communicative about this. We exist because when I was a kid, my dad, God rest his soul, used to come home from work and I could tell he felt defeated because he had bad management. And I was a little kid and I didn't know why, but I loved my dad and I thought, why should he, who was good at his job and cared about what he did and his customers, he had really high standards, why should he feel this sense of frustration And as I got older, I realized, and I got my own job at a management consulting firm, I thought, oh my gosh, this is universal. There's so many people out there that feel defeated. And I thought, that is not honoring the dignity of the human person. A person feels, and and when I saw the few people that loved their work and were treated well, I thought, this is a ministry. And I think every job is a ministry. I can say that to you here. Yeah. I think every job is a ministry and we have to connect to it. Is it to provide people with, with a job that can make their family's life better? Is it to give people um, better health? Is it to make, and my company's ministry is to make work fulfilling for everyone. Wow. Now, the beauty of it is we do that through making organizations healthy so that they can be more effective. And that happens to lead to better customer satisfaction, better revenue but better employee satisfaction. But at the end of the day, what we wake up for, and we repeat this at every one of our meetings is, there are people in the world who as a result of what we do, God has allowed us to help them feel more satisfied and they treat their spouses and their children and their neighbors and strangers on the bus better. And that's why we do what we do. Well, who isn't gonna come to work and think, it's like, well, Pat, I'm organized this webinar for you they're not going to be like, well, Amy said, oh, Carrie's great. His, his audience is great. You're going to get to preach th- about organizational health to them. And we get excited about that. And I will, mm. after this is over, go tell, share with them is we had a great conversation. And I think hundreds, if not thousands, if not more than that, people will actually hear about this and they will go share that with their organizations. Every organization deep down inside is a ministry, I believe.
0: Oh, you know, and see, that is so good. You know this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's it. I mean, my little company that does this, and there'll be 30,000 leaders who hear this episode, this solo episode, maybe more, 50,000. You know, it's to help people thrive in life and leadership. And if you don't have something like that that gets your whole team up in the morning, Pat, I don't know whether you agree with this. I always tell leaders, nobody wants to work for me and nobody wants to work for you. They want to work for something bigger than me and bigger than you. And if you can find that, you can motivate people.
1: Our job is to connect them to that. Yeah. You know what's funny, Carrie? So Southwest Airlines, yeah. a, a public company, it's like the third largest airline in the world. It flies more people in the United States than any air, other air carrier. I, I know them well. It's a ministry. Mm. It's about loving people, one another and their customers. And when a lady has a, a, an unruly child on a plane, they love on her. When somebody throws up because they're sick, they love on them. They really love it. They're not perfect, but it's really about love. That's their stock ticker symbol, LUV. They have a heart on things, you know, and it's very real. We, my people were just there the other day. Now here's the thing. They do not run that company based on their numbers. Really? They do, they do not wake up every day and look at their, their stock price. They just don't. They know that that stuff matters. In a capitalist society and in a world where they're employing people, they have to be responsible, but that's not what drives them. And I will tell you this, Carrie. Now, and they're public, so they're much more heroic in that than I am. At my company here, if I do not know how much money we made last year at my company. That's There's fantastic. somebody here that does, and every meeting we say, how are we doing financially? And she says, we're doing great, and then we move on. I don't know what our revenue is. I don't know what my income was. We Now, I know that we, I make enough to pay for my family, and we live okay, we live well, yep. and I know our company does too. We don't have to fret about expensive at my company, but we do not care about that first and foremost. That is an evidence that we're serving our customers well. Hmm. And so that the best companies in the world, they have to be responsible financially, but it is not the driver. It's not primary or even secondary.
0: Thanks for sharing that about your dad too. I think you know Reggie Joyner. and if so he's a yeah. mutual friend and uh, Reggie I've heard him talk about that at dinner and with different groups that you know watching your dad grow up you know when you were growing up coming home defeated has motivated a life's mission for you and and that's just that's that's really powerful. Well that's hungry and I love it. Let's talk about smart what does smart uh, mean it could mean so many different things what does smart mean
1: yeah it certainly does not mean intellectually smart right because i will take a person with a high eq over a high iq any day and i know that's not that's, that sounds like a throwaway line but we should not I, i'm working on a, a book and a video for teenagers oh, really? um and, and middle schoolers about humble hungry smart because think about it if you're a parent and there's parents listening to this wouldn't you want your, your your children to grow up and become humble, hungry, and smart more than intellectually smart? I mean, you, I know people who are brilliant and they went to Harvard or wherever they went to school, but they don't know how to work with people. They're arrogant, they're lazy, but they're brilliant. And yeah, as you progress through younger academic years, they might get attention and you might have a bumper sticker for the back of your car, but they're not going to work on teams well. They're not going to build great families and have great relationships? And why aren't we teaching our young people the most important foundational skills for life? And I don't mean skills like vocation. I mean, I'm talking about how to be other-centered, how to work really hard, and how to be aware of how your words and actions affect others, that's emotional intelligence. And so EQ is very real. It's practical application of interpersonal skills and how it affects other human beings. And I was telling my 15-year-old about that the other day. He did something while my wife and I and my other son were playing cards. And I said, Casey, that was an example of, of not emotional intelligence. And my wife said, "You don't have to be so harsh to me." You know, so I don't want to be a perfect yeah. dad. <laughs> like, oh, "Gee, what kind of dad is he?" <laughs> but and I was like, "Casey, that was not emotionally intelligent." She was like, "Okay, dad, but you're a little intense." I'm like, "Okay, sorry, but <laughs> Casey, you need to realize how do you think that made your brother feel or me feel?" And and if you have emotional intelligence, it's going to make you so much better of a friend and a spouse and a project leader and a colleague. And so that's what it means. It means- It's EI. EI. And, and, and Travis Bradbury, who I know, has done all kinds of work on emotional intelligence, but it's very practical and common sense. It's like, do you understand and intentionally do and say things in terms of how they impact others? Now, yeah. here's what's interesting though, Carrie. If you're good at that, but you're not humble, it's dangerous. Oh. See, if you're emotionally intelligent, but not humble- you're gonna be, and if you're hungry on top of that, if you're hungry and emotionally intelligent and not humble, we call that the skillful politician. You are gonna be masterful at manipulating others. I have to tell you a story because you're Canadian. So (laughs) I once worked at an organization and there was this guy on the team who was Canadian, so we never suspected that he was going to be a skillful politician because Canadians are so nice.
0: You know? No, we don't have any of those in our country, but go <laughs> ahead with the exception. <laughs> yeah.
1: But that's the, that's the positively maybe stereotype of Canadians from America. Sure. It's like, oh, they're all sure. so nice. Eh? And so this guy was so good at doing that, projecting that, that we never realized that underneath it all, he was projecting teamwork, projecting humility, and he was doing it to benefit himself and further his career and his income. When people know how to fake humility and they know how to say things at meetings that sound like they're a team player, but they're not sincere, that's worse. That's worse than if they weren't good at it. I it's would almost rather- It's
0: sociopathic,
1: Yeah. Exactly. I just wrote an article yesterday about this young woman, and God bless her because she's a child of God and she's broken, but the, the CEO of Theranos, this company in the United States, and I don't know if you saw it, if you know it this, is. there's this book called Bad Blood Out, and she was this terribly ambitious, I'm sure deep down inside insecure person who knew how to charm some of the most famous people in the world and get them on their board and get them to invest with her and and get them to do partnerships with her company and it was built on fraudulent technology and she lied and she convinced people what she was doing. It hurt patients. They were using her medical technology. She just burned through employees and threatened them. One guy committed suicide and it was because she was super hungry and super smart, but not at all humble. Wow. And that's the most dangerous thing of all. And unfortunately, we call it the skillful politician because when a person in power gets like that in politics, it is so dangerous. They leave it. Oh, yeah. Or in ministry. Oh, yep. when there's somebody in ministry that's so ambitious and so talented at projecting that they're a that they're so kind and so humble. And deep down inside they're not, it is it is a terribly painful thing for the people around them. And and At the end of the day, when the person ultimately gets found out, it's so sad for them and their family and the people they've hurt because they were so broken. So when we hire people, we have to make sure deep down inside they're truly, truly humble and not masking that. How
0: do you cultivate those? I mean, I'm sure that, you know, all of us get a little bit convicted on one or two of them. Um, How do you know that, you know, you've, like, how do you cultivate humility, hunger, and smartness?
1: I think the most so there's an exercise that we encourage people to do. There's all kinds of things in the book about questions to ask during interviews and how to develop somebody and how to work with somebody and give them feedback. But I love this one. And that is, once you understand the real definitions of these things, ask people on your team, which of these three things are you the worst at? You might be pretty good at all of them, but what's your third of three? And I've done this with many teams. I've done it with kids on my son's lacrosse team. I've done it with athletes and executives. And, um, and I have did it with on my college, my son's in college, their lacrosse team. And I said, which of these are you worst at? And it was amazing because there was none of them that people were not willing to call out on themselves. Mm-hmm. I had people say, I had 12 year old say it, and I had other people say it, I'm not that humble. The Mm -hmm. truth is, I like to be the one that scores. I like to get attention. And I know that's not good for the team, but that's the one I need help on. I need to get better at. Other kids would say, it's hunger. You know, I'm not staying out late after practice. I'm not working on things on my own. I know I should be doing drills on my own, but I'm not. I come to practice, I do what I'm and that's it. And some said, I'm not smart. You could see when somebody makes a mistake on the field, I remember there was a goalie and I just start chewing them out. And I'm like, that does not motivate them. That is not interpersonally smart. And so then once everybody says that, then everybody gives, the other people on the team said, I need you to call me out when you see me do it. I've just admitted it to you. That's how you cultivate it. So when somebody is like at a meeting and they're talking about themselves too much, somebody might say, listen, hey, I know your project went well, but I think you're talking, you're calling a little too much attention to yours. Why don't you ask the other people at the table? And they're like, oh, okay, great. Thanks for saying that because they've acknowledged it. Uh, You've
0: got a a self-assessment on your website, right? I took it. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll link to that in the show notes. And for the record, uh, my low mark was on smart. I sometimes don't understand my impact on other people.
1: Yep. And we call a a person that's really, now that doesn't mean, by the way, that you're egregiously bad at it. Everybody's got a lowest one. So we do that in terms of culting that in the environment. But when a person is egregiously lacking in that, and I'm guessing Carrie, based on the common friends we have and who, what you've done and everything, that you're not egregiously lacking on that. You haven't insulted. No, it was it
0: was uh, you had like a, a, a you're doing great, you know, you're in the middle, and I was just on the top of the middle there, and then you have like go go to jail or whatever the bottom category was. <laughs> so yeah, but it was like you know, and I'm I I became aware of that over a decade ago through counseling and. Um, leadership coaching. And I will have people sitting in meetings with me watching the interaction and then they report back because it's just it's like being colorblind. It's like, is that green or gray? I can't tell. And for some reason, there's just a deficiency in me where I can't always read body language. I can't always tell what's really going on in a room. So I try to get smart people around me who can
1: help me with that. Exactly. And that's what it's all about is being vulnerable enough to invite, not only invite, but to exhort people to give you that. Yeah, and we're teaching, yeah. we're teaching priests and 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 pastors and their staffs to do that because so many times people say, "Well, I'm not allowed to tell the pastor that he came across as arrogant." It's like, "Oh, if you love him, uh, yes. you have to." That's what we said. This is rooted in love. Let's unpack
0: that a little bit because I, I want to ask a few questions, I man, The time's just flying today, um, but there are a lot of church pastors listening. And I think getting feedback, having sat in that chair for two decades, can be really difficult because you're their boss. You have the power to hire and fire, um, at least in evangelical world you do. And you're also their pastor, and that creates a very bizarre power dynamic. And speaking truth to power is hard in any context. But do you want to coach our church leaders, through how they can get honest feedback? Because that is a really weird, you know, situation.
1: You know, what I would say is this. I would say, first of all, know that there's a difference between being vulnerable and getting feedback from your team, your small exec, your leadership team, than it is from the staff at large in your church or their congregation. So it's not about, it's not about the the pastor standing up in front of the whole congregation and saying, I have a problem. Or it's not about him or her walking through the office and saying, oh gee, everybody give me feedback. Now they need to be open to that in the right context. But what I'm talking about is you have to have a group of three or four, two or three or four or five people on that team that are so close and so vulnerable that it's like family. And what Mm -hmm. I would probably say is, maybe what you should say is I should not be your spiritual director or your confessor because I need you to be my peer. And even though I know, and like what we say in the Catholic church, the pastor is the ultimate authority. It doesn't mean he has all the responsibility or Mm. that people can't, can't call him on things. In fact, they must. So maybe what they can do is they can say, well, these four people, I will have a peer relationship with and 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 will and will be though a spiritual father to them, I will not necessarily be their primary one, and that allows them. Now, I think you could even I think now this is me because I'm an ENFP yeah. and I probably do things unwisely sometimes, but I think you could even do both if you really really got loved them enough to get close to them. But I think maybe there's some wisdom in not doing that. But but when a when a pastor says I should be vulnerable and let everybody give me feedback. That's not wise. But oftentimes they think, well, since I'm not going to do it for everyone, I won't do it for anyone. I need to be different. And that's when they get into loneliness, ego, isolation. The devil loves that. Yes. Um, I'm writing a book right now called the Amazing Parish, which is which is a fiction story about a a young priest who takes over a parish. Um, and I, as you and I talked before, I write for the Catholic church because all Catholic parishes are very similar. A lot of this mm-hmm. stuff would apply to any kind of church, but because the sacramental things and the responsibilities and the structure tends to be similar in the Catholic church, I do a lot of work in that way. But it, I just wrote a scene last night where the pastor says, okay, I'm supposed to be vulnerable with you guys, but am, am, aren't I supposed to be that way with everyone? And they said, Not necessarily. You know, just like the CEO shouldn't walk the halls and admit to every employee his deepest, darkest secrets. He needs to have people around him who can both, he can be vulnerable with and can hold him accountable. And if a CEO thought everyone should do that, then they probably would never be vulnerable. And that's probably part of the
0: problem. Anyway,
1: we just drifted there. I'm sorry.
0: No, this is really good. What would you say to the leader who's listening right now and, you know, in a corporate or particularly a church setting and who deep down kind of knows, I'm not sure I'm secure enough to really get feedback?
1: Well, then I would say that's that's awesome. First of all, the fact that they said that gives me hope. And it makes it very clear that the first area they should focus on before getting feedback is working on that security. And if they're not willing to do that, they really can't be a good leader. Yeah. If they can just admit, yeah, I struggle with personal insecurity. When I get feedback, I get defensive. It threatens my, my identity. I feel unworthy. And that's a spiritual and a very practical issue that needs to be addressed.
0: I love how you serve the church and, you know, being Roman Catholic, you've got a particular passion for what's happening there. As someone in Protestant world, I've benefited so much. When you look at leadership lids, um, are there any lids that you see commonly repeating in the church, whether that's in the pastor or in the congregation? What are some typical lids that you have seen leaders hit um, in church world?
1: Oh yeah, I love talking about this. I have a very specific answer for for you on this. And this is one that's that's born in our society and it's permeated the church as so many things do. And it's very dangerous. And that is the fear of conflict. (laughs) There is such a dearth of good conflict in the church. People think that Jesus' commandment was be nice to one another as you want people to be nice to you. You know, he said, love one another. And if you it doesn't take a, a, a deep reading of the Bible to realize that Jesus wasn't always nice, I and mean, he was never cruel, he was never overtly mean. He was honest and he loved people. And if a person was was fragile and they needed encouragement, he gave them that encouragement. But if they were in authority and they needed to be called on that, he did that in a way that was not always easy to hear. And when he needed to when they had to have disagreement. And now this was God incarnate. So, I mean, we are not, but we are definitely called iron sharpens iron, it says in the Bible. Mm. And yet too many churches look like pillow fights. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. You know? And here's the thing. What results out of this? Two things. One, we make bad decisions. We don't have good conflict. So we never really have things out. And as a result, we're not leading our churches in the way they need to be led. Two, we grow to distrust one another and hurt one another. See, when we don't have conflict around issues, productive conflict, and I call it productive ideological conflict. In other words, here's an idea. We should add another service on Sundays. We should debate that one. Because we love each other and we trust each other, that comes first, but we should debate that. We should not hold back. And just because the pastor says, yes, I wanna add one, or no, I don't, too often people go, well, the pastor doesn't want to. Okay, so here's what we're not gonna do. It's like, no, 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 push back on the pastor. Even if at the end of the conversation, he is the ultimate decision maker, that's okay. Have the conflict. When we don't have conflict around issues, here's the clincher. When we don't have conflict in our churches around issues, it inevitably ferments into conflict around the people. Yep. And we start thinking, I didn't tell that person what I really thought, so I'm frustrated at them and they annoy me and I don't respect them. And ultimately it's gonna come out in a back channel conflict in the parking lot or in the hallways, indirect usually, or you're gonna blow up at that person sometime, or worse yet, You're going to fire them without ever having talked to them. People in churches get hurt more than in any other organizations behind the scenes, not because people who work in churches are mean, but because they've mistakenly confused niceness for love. Love requires people to tell each other the truth in love and grace. But when you take a, a book of a good friend of mine, his name is Chris Stefanik. And I'll tell you, he's one of the most amazing evangelists. People should go, he has a site called Real Life Catholic and he's just wonderful. And he's got so much wisdom. He's just a great young guy. Chris says, when you take out truth, when you have given somebody grace without truth, it's a form of cruelty because you're affirming them in things that aren't good for them. Mm-hmm. And our society does that all the time.
0: That's gold, Pat. Tell me, uh, when you said we've got to, to use the example of adding another service, we've got to debate that. Um, speak to the small church leader of 50, 75, 100. Do you debate that with the whole church or do you debate that with the elders or that part-time staff member? Or how does that work, your key volunteers?
1: It's a great question. Regardless of your organization, you need to know who's on your leadership team. Yeah. And, and, and it's going to look different. If it's a church like that, the elders might very well be y- your defect kitchen cabinet. Yep. It's not with everyone. You don't vote. I don't think democracy, I think it was Churchill who said this, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think it was. Yeah. But, but that's for government. But for running an organization or a church, it's never been meant to be a democracy. It's supposed to be, and and if you have everybody vote, I mean, the worst, and this is why I feel for my friends in congregational churches where everything gets yeah. voted on. It's like, oh, we can't do anything because we got to submit it to a vote. What we should be doing is submitting it to prayer and, and purifying our attentions and then getting together the leaders who God has given us the stewardship of this organization. And we need to get together in and, and purity and in prayer push back and try to figure out what the right thing is. Now, that doesn't mean you can't get input. That doesn't mean you shouldn't ask people. But but if you go to your parish and say, everybody vote, you're just gonna make a decision that takes a long time and is equally unsettling to everyone. So so the question I would say to that pastor of the 75 person congregation is, who are the two or three people that you rely on for helping you think through things and have that conversation? And the chance that you're gonna get the right answer is very high. If, if you're brutally, lovingly honest with one another and really push back on one another's assumptions.
0: So last question, you teach this stuff all over the world to all kinds of people, but you also run your own company. And I'm just curious, what have been the one or two things that of everything you teach, it's like, wow, this one's just, this one's always challenging for you personally in the table group? And then what do you do to surmount that?
1: Well, first of all, we don't apply any of this in our own. (laughs) No, No, we do. In fact, we are really, we, we, this is the Petri dish where we test everything. And and when we don't do it well, we feel we're like, Hey, we're, so we really do try to live our concepts every day, every day, which, and, and as a result of that, and this it's messy, the best organizations in the world are messy the best families are the best churches are you know the apostles were messy peter yes. was a messy guy you know and they loved it. it was love we're not perfect only jesus and 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 um well and i believe mary i mean she was without <laughs> sin jesus is god's <laughs> son mary was a human being but anyway but the, the thing i think i struggle with and and it depends on your your unique skills and your unique your unique uh, challenges but I think it's the simplicity and the discipline of doing things every day. It's like anything else in life. It's like our prayer life. It's like waking up every day and starting in prayer and going back to God and submitting yourself to Jesus every day and just like exercise. Everybody wants to know, what's my, my juice cleanse or my, and what exercise? It's like, you know something? Move and, and and be active every day and stick to the regimen. And when it comes to healthy organizations, it's not about being charismatic. It's not about adopting some magical thing. It's about staying true to the are we exercising these simple truths every day? And my biggest challenge is wanting to come to wing it. It's just to want to come and just go, I just feel like doing whatever I want to do. <laughs> And I know that's rooted in some combination of pride and sloth and and whatever else, but it's sticking to the simple wisdom, um, which is always biblical. I mean, it always comes from God.
0: Pat, I can't thank you enough for the time you gave us today. People are going to want to find you online. We'll link to everything in the show notes, but what's the easiest place to find you?
1: Well, our website is just tablegroup.com. That's table, like kitchen table, tablegroup.com. This has been the most fun I've ever had on a podcast. This is fantastic. Really? Wow. Yeah, I could just keep talking to you. We talked before. I know. I
0: feel like we got into part one. So maybe we can do a part two at some point. I would love that. Pat, thank you so much. God bless you. Don't you just want to hang out with him a little more? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I love it. Patrick was so great with his time and just so honest and so transparent uh, thank you, Pat. Hey, uh, if you want more, you can go to the show notes, com slash episode 222. And guess what you're going to find in the show notes? Transcripts. We added them this month. You asked for them. You've got them. Uh, you can find them there. And by the way, we can do that because we have not only you guys spreading the word, but incredible partners like Pushpay. And remember, Patrick and I will be speaking together in January in Dallas. And if you go to pushpay.com slash carry, you can get 10% off on registration. Check them out for all of their mobile giving needs. And if you haven't yet checked out Remodel Health, what are you waiting for? Go to remodelhealth.com slash carry and save up to 34% in your healthcare employer burden costs starting now. And remember, with both these companies, say you heard it here, And we got some fun episodes for you. We are going to be focusing on growth this month. And coming up this week, we have another episode with, uh, actually, it's a replay of, because we're 222 in, of the all-time most downloaded episode on this podcast. And it's a great primer. It's like a masterclass in church growth. Carl George and Warren Bird are coming up this week. Then next week, not only our regular episode, which I'll tell you about in a second, but I have a great conversation with Josh Gagnon and some of his team on breaking the 200 barrier in multi-site churches. How do you make sure that when you plant the new campus, things grow? And they are experts at it. They've launched over 10 locations, and we're going to talk about some of the ups and some of the downs. So it's going to be a fun end of the month here for October. But next Tuesday, we are back, as we always are on Tuesdays, with Levi Lusco. I had talked to Levi and Jenny about a month ago in a personal and like moving episode about the loss of their daughter. Uh, but I also had a chance to talk to Levi just about planting churches where nobody plants churches, being yourself in a very different culture and declaring war on the issues that plague people as leaders. Here's an excerpt from next week's episode. How do I reach a million really people? Well, God just kind of saying you're going to have to get
1: creative. And so at that point, our strategy shifted to more of a shotgun approach, where if we can get a small campus in every uh, city within Montana, we can have a, 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 a we won't run out of opportunities of people to reach. And so from there, it spread out to Salt Lake City. And then, you know, from now, now we see ourselves, like I said, a church in four states.
0: So a whole lot happening over the next few weeks here on the podcast. And by the way, I've still got a couple of cities left on the Orange Tour. So if you are in Orlando or Charlotte, make sure you come on over and say hi to all of you that I've been able to connect with personally this fall in the many cities we've been in. Thank you. It was good to take a uh, summer off of travel, but it's kind of fun to be back on the road this fall. So I hope I can connect with you personally. In the meantime, thanks for all the comments and interaction on social and via email. So appreciate you guys. Hey, we are back soon with a fresh episode and I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change and personal growth to help you lead like never before.